You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com for information about webinars and consulting services. Okay, I have received a lot of questions about how the awakened walking COVID ICU has fared. Jeff, one of the respiratory therapists, addressed a lot of their COVID practices in episode 86. This episode, Dr. Joel Pittman shares with us some big picture outcomes and successes that are attributable to the persistent practice of avoiding sedation and prompt ambulation, even and especially during COVID-19. Dr. Pittman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you mind introducing yourself? Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Joel Pittman. I practice pulmonary and critical care medicine. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. I went to medical school at Wayne State University in Detroit, which was a wonderful place to learn medicine. I then did my residency and fellowship at the University of Utah uh, in internal medicine and then pulmonary critical care. After my fellowship in 2010, I went into private practice for a few years, and then I've been at my current job for about the last seven years. So what was it like after all of that training in outside hospitals to come to the awake and walk in ICU. What kind of experience was that initially? Yeah, so luckily my training involved being uh, in and around the awake and walking ICU. So it wasn't a huge surprise to see what was happening in this ICU with sedation and mobility. However, it was vastly, vastly different than the, the eight or 10 ICUs I had spent time in prior to, prior to the job. I remember you talking about tracheostomies at one point, and as a new nurse, that was so unique to me. We didn't, we don't really do a lot of tracheostomies in that ICU. And you had mentioned how frequently you were doing them. And then you came to the awake and walking ICU and it just stopped essentially. Correct. In my private practice job, I was in, I practiced in an ICU that essentially the only way to awaken a patient was to place a tracheostomy. These patients were otherwise completely sedated for days and days and days. And, and again, the only way to wake them up safely and comfortably for the staff was to place tracheostomy. So a lot of tracheostomies were performed in, in, in this particular ICU. And that was in the, like around 2010, I'm trying to think what the timing would have been. Yeah. So 2010 to 2013 or 14. And that's still the standard practice around the country and the world is that this cultural belief that patients have to be sedated until they receive a tracheostomy because of unknown reasons, it's safer to wake patients up once they have a hole in their throat. So that's 
we're still stuck in that routine. And yet, and they wake and walk in ICU, they wake up right away and are mobile and don't and usually end up with tracheostomies. So for years we practiced this way and then COVID hit. How have you seen COVID affect the process of care in this ICU? It hasn't much affected a lack of sedation and mobility. We are seeing more patients with respiratory failure on the ventilator, including patients who are have maximum settings on the ventilator. And because of our culture and, ex, and our experience, we are still awakening patients despite their profound respiratory failure. Which is probably really mind-blowing to a lot of people. If I post things online, the comments always say, well, clearly that patient in that picture doesn't have a PEEP of 14 and 70%. And I'll say, no, they have a PEEP of 18 and 100%, smiling with a thumbs up on it, walking. But that's a really scary prospect, but you've seen good outcomes even during COVID. Yes. We, we have traveling nurses because of how, because of the pandemic and, and, and how in dire straits we are for staffing. We have travelers come in and simply don't believe what's happening. They, they've made comments directly to me how much they appreciate working in this particular ICU because people actually survive COVID and are getting better. So, so it is a, what we do with sedation mobility works well in, co, in very sick COVID patients. And the more I study the research as far as the role in mobility plays and exacerbating the neutrophilic response in the lungs and things like that, it makes so much sense. And this hospital is part of a multi-hospital system and it's one of the main COVID centers in that area, how have the outcomes compared to the other ICUs or COVID units in the area? Yeah, so I'm, I'm told very favorably our CMO has lauded, lauded us who work in our particular ICU on our outcomes. He tells me that our, our, our mortality is half uh, of what other ICUs in the enterprise are reportedly roughly, we have, we have a roughly 20% mortality in intubated COVID patients where we're seeing about a 40% mortality across our enterprise. We are thankfully a very integrated enterprise, certainly within our ICUs. We perform mechanical ventilation the same, our treatments for COVID are all the same. So I'd argue that it's probably sedation and mobility that are key to improving mortality. Yeah, I really hope we're able to do data collection and do kind of a retrospective study on this because when else have we had the exact same ailment, the exact same population in the same community, with essentially the same treatments except for sedation and mobility. That's really powerful. And I know that the team has been really demoralized because of the staffing crisis, a lot of frustration, they lost a lot of staff. Still 20% mortality is much higher than what 
we're used to there. And they've had staffing ratios that are, have been inappropriate, three patients to one nurse. I mean, it's been really difficult. I think the assumption is made that this ICU has this, this success because they have one-to-one staffing ratios. A lot of people assume that that's the only way you can keep a patient awake on a ventilator. Do you see high risks? Is the safety, is it really unsafe to have patients awake on the ventilator even during COVID? Are the delirium rates that high? So let me answer your first question. I, I think it is safe to have patients awake and alert and walk. There are, I think it's slightly less safe given some barriers specific to COVID that are negative pressure rooms with our doors being closed all the time can pose a risk in terms of not being able to get to a patient uh, safely and quickly if, if, if they are start pulling at things inappropriately. But ultimately, these people have respiratory failure and are on our ventilator, and we feel strongly that, that keeping these people, these, these people awake and alert and interactive and proactive own benefit is, is the right thing to do. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the discussion outside of this ICU is this question of safety. It's unsafe to have patients unrestrained. But yet when we're talking about safety, we're not factoring in all the unsafe risks of sedation and immobility, how unsafe delirium is, how unsafe it is to let patients atrophy and increase the risk of mortality just with that alone. So I think this is a good case study or a good example of how we actually improve safety when we avoid sedation and don't chemically restrain people. And my experience is a lot of patients in that ICU can be unrestrained because they are not delirious. So I think we try to drive down restraint use with sedation use, and yet it's a little backwards. Yeah, I agree. Well, as if people, if if people, patients sick with COVID are awake and interactive and not delirious, they often are safer and are happy to do what we ask of them and are understand that their endotracheal tube is a life-saving piece of equipment that needs to stay in place. So they, they often can, well, I'm often seeing patients adjust their endotracheal tube. It's a little uncomfortable without pulling it. I have one of my favorite patients was a young woman with COVID pneumonia who had profound respiratory failure and she was on a PEEP of 18 and with an FiO2 of 100%, and she required proning, and she was happy to be awake and alert and help herself prone, as well as, as, well as interact with her family by texting and FaceTiming while she was prone and, and, and and while it took a long time, based on the, the severity of her, her ARDS pneumonia, she eventually walked out of our unit. I'd say, I think it took three or four weeks of her being in our ICU. 
which is a long time for that ICU, right? Most COVID, even COVID patients don't stay three or four weeks. It's not out of the, it's not off the, the curve in terms of our experience with severe COVID pneumonia. We're seeing patients spend, I think our average is about 10 days on a ventilator. So it's, 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 it's a long, it's a long, a long sickness that, that is benefited by patients being awake and alert throughout it and, 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 and serves them well when they do get better. So I think a lot of the maybe national norm is to have patients on the ventilator for three, four weeks before they get trached and sent to an LTAC. I mean, that is the norm, let alone have someone successfully extubated after such high ventilator settings and then walk out the door. That might be unfathomable to most people. And then to have them prone and awake and communicating without paralytics, I, I think it sounds like we're very quickly paralyzing patients and deeply sedating them automatically, which I think is that one comes before the other. I think we deeply sedate them. And then that probably causes some level of ventilator dyssynchrony. And so we instinctively paralyze them. How often are you guys using paralytics and how, what's kind of your proning protocol? So we have patients sick enough and uncomfortable enough on uh, the ventilator that we do that do require sedation and paralysis. I'd argue those those patients are a significant minority. Even if a patient requires sedation and paralysis on day one or two of their ICU stay, we still make an effort to do a full sedation vacation when they are supine. And oftentimes we find that that deep sedation is unnecessary. Uh, and deep sedation to us is usually a propofol and fentanyl infusion. And we discover that a fentanyl infusion at most or fentanyl boluses alone can keep a patient comfortable on a ventilator with, pro, with profound or severe respiratory failure. Have you ever used midazolam on any of these patients? No. And that has been very standard. It's a new, it's the new hot trend right now for everyone to be on midazolam, propofol, fentanyl, and often presidex on top of it. It's discouraging to see how much benzodiazepines have come back, but the wake and walk in ICU has treated probably hundreds, thousands of COVID patients now and never used midazolam. And I remember at the very beginning, we had to send out educational material to talk about sedation vacations because we weren't doing them beforehand because we didn't really sedate patients. So we had to teach everyone how to do a sedation vacation. And it was nice to see the it used so appropriately when I learned sedation vacations as a travel nurse back in 2014, it was just turn down the propofol just enough to see them thrash, then crank it back up. Yet that's not what they do at LDS. I mean, what if someone's supine, so if they're prone and they can't oxygenate being supine, then it's not time for sedation vacation yet. But once they're supine and then we do a sedation vacation, they really want to see if they can oxygenate with movement, right? There's no need to turn it back on. Correct. Yeah. John Cress's elegant, a small but elegant sedation vacation paper, which I think is close to 20 years old. In my experience, it, it has never been done well in a 
clinical setting. And, and again, oftentimes in our ICU, sedation vacations aren't even necessary. Uh, Which is so encouraging. It, and it's really easier to do it, do it right the, at the very beginning, at the front end, so you, you don't have to do the cleanup at the back end and fix those things. I see a lot of teams talking about how difficult it is to implement the A to F bundle, but I think that is difficult to implement. I think it is the way that they're implementing it, which means that with this assumption that sedation is automatically started on every patient on mechanical ventilation, and then we do a sedation vacation later, oftentimes the parameters are set once the ventilator settings are PEEP of eight, FIO2 less than 60%. So you can't do a vacation until those parameters are set hit. And now you've created delirium and now it's down to the nurse to wrestle a patient their whole shift with delirium because they're doing a vacation or the vacations just aren't done or they're done poorly. It is really difficult to standardize. Whereas in the wake and walking ICU, the standardization is to avoid sedation and prevent delirium. And that's really foreign to a lot of listeners. And I think the listeners on the podcast are wanting to transition to that. What experience or what advice would you give to teams that are wanting to transition to this process of care? It's a great question, critically important question. And it ultimately comes down to culture. That culture requires time and energy and resources. And it is very much, it very much, that culture very much involves a team effort that places a patient's interaction, a patient places a patient's ability to be awake and proactive in their care at the top of uh, the priority list, despite how sick a patient is and for whatever they come in with, having them be awake and interactive and walking as soon as possible is, is the, the priority within our culture. It takes a team effort, nurses, techs, respiratory therapists, and physical therapists are on the front line of that. They do the brunt of the work to make it happen. And oftentimes our advanced practice practitioners are involved. And once in a while a physician gets involved, but but it's 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 the it's the the nurse, tech, respiratory therapist, and physical therapist who who do do the majority of the work. It's easy once that culture is in place because you see what a huge difference it makes in a patient, in a person's, a person who was critically ill, it, it makes a huge difference in their life, really. And as a physician, easily one of the most satisfying things that happens in our ICU and to our, for our patients. We do a lot of exciting, life-saving procedures and resuscitations, but when you see a patient awake and walking and trying to do their part to make themselves better, there's, there's, there's little more satisfying than that. 
Absolutely. And I, a lot of people reaching out to me for the webinars and presentations are nurses, physical therapists, people on that level of the bedside. But they, sometimes they report that they have a hard time getting physician buy-in. What recommendations would you give to those visionaries, those ICU evolutionists, wanting to bring the change to their teams? How can they incorporate the full team? Certainly don't get in the way of someone, someone with a vision who wants to, to enact those changes. Certainly don't get in the way. Read the literature about post-ICU syndrome and how terrible it can be and try and do everything that you can to avoid the post-ICU syndrome. What do you envision for the future of critical care medicine? What I've noticed over my career is that we are doing things in a less invasive way and trying to keep things as normal for a person who is critically ill as possible. And I'll, one example is the PA catheter. The PA catheter was used frequent at the beginning of my training, and now we're using echo uh, to get some of the information that a PA catheter was. So, so a less invasive way to get information about a patient's cardiac status and volume status. Mechanical ventilation using low, lower tidal volumes because that is pro that's more physiologic, that's more normal than, than using larger tidal volumes, getting away with using peripheral IVs to, 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 to infuse vasopressors rather than a central line if it's appropriate. And keeping people awake and interactive is just a natural progression of trying to keep people as normal as possible to ultimately get them better from their critical illness and get them back on their feet and to avoid the post-ICU syndrome. That's a way, great way to capture this movement of humanizing the ICU, to allow our patients to be human and as normal as possible, all the movements towards normal sleep cycles, not to regress, but you mentioned central lines. How often are your COVID patients having central lines? Is it everyone, like in other units? Not, not everyone, not everyone. I, I don't know exactly the percentage, but it's far from everyone. Are the 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 sickest ones who require proning usually are getting a central line to ensure to ensure a vascular access that won't get pulled in the in the process of proning. So I'd argue at most 50% of our COVID patients are getting, getting central line. Which that alone is probably unfathomable to a lot of clinicians. When we automatically start sedation on every patient in mechanical ventilation, then you can just count on hypotension and you're gonna need vasopressors for an extended period of time. And so it seems like every patient gets intubated, sedated, the central line. And that has to be a huge contributor to these hospital acquired infection risks that we have. 
even independent of the ventilator-associated pneumonias, but the central line of um, infections have to be so much higher than usual because of the rates in which we're giving central lines. And it's a little discouraging to think that they maybe are preventable. If we did evidence-based practices with our sedation practices, we could prevent a lot of infections. So that's just an interesting side note that less than 50% probably have central lines because of avoiding sedation. And a lot of um, teams are reporting that a lot of patients are on CRRT for COVID. How often are you seeing CRRT? Um, more often than before COVID, too often in general. But I, I, I don't have exact numbers, but I'd argue somewhere between a third, 25% uh, and a third of our patients are requiring, at most are requiring CRT. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Hopefully someday we can go back and have the numbers, but that's just an interesting insight because we know that with muscular atrophy, we um, pour fuel on this inflammatory process and we contribute to multi-organ failure. And so it'd be interesting to try to dissect how much of a benefit this was to sparing the kidneys as well as the other organs by implementing early mobility, actual early mobility. Well, this has been so beneficial. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience. Thanks for all your good work. Is there anything else you would share with the ICU community? I, I, I've never been critically ill, thank God. So I have no idea what our patients are experiencing, but I feel that keeping people awake and interactive and participating in their care preserves human dignity. I can only imagine how vulnerable and scared our critically ill patients are. And, and, and I, again, I think pe keeping people awake and alert and interactive is one, if not the most important thing that we can do for our patients. I absolutely agree. And I think there's a new movement with ICU survivors and ICU clinicians in which they're making themselves a DNS, do not sedate. In episode three, I interviewed Susan East who had had it the normal way, her first time with ARDS and her following two times with ARDS, she was awake and her experience was wholly different. And she talks about the dignity part of it, how she wanted to have her own autonomy, call her own shots, interact with her family. And I am so grateful that that's what we can do for patients. I think part of our burnout throughout the community is the dehumanization of our patient care. We all got into this to save lives, to connect with people, to love people, care for them, provide the best care. And that's all been stripped from us during COVID and especially with our practices that have now gone back 10, 15 years in time. And so I think that'll be part of the healing process is to rehumanize the ICU, to see our patients as human, to get to know them, to look in their eyes, to interact with them, communicate with them, and actually see them get better and walk out the doors and to know that we facilitated that. We actually did save their lives in that moment, but also their quality of life for the rest of their lives. And that will, is what's gonna keep us in critical care medicine and help put it into this mass exodus. Dr. Pittman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you again. If you want to join in on the conversation, Leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.